0: interesting Bible study, but Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is what was considered a prison epistle, one of several that Paul wrote while he was in jail. And we want to look at several things here. I'll begin reading with verse number one and read through verse number six. See, if you Bruning ladies are going to go this long without being in Bible studying, cause a commotion here, we're going to have to have a talk with you folks. Okay. (laughs) Ephesians 4, (laughs) verses 1 through 6. Here we go. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you've been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There's one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So that's as far as we'll read. Let's have a word of prayer again. Lord, it's a blessing to be able to fellowship with the saints. And for a few moments, as we look into the word of God, we need you to speak to our hearts. Give us ears to hear. Let each one of us be edified by what we learn regarding unity this evening. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As a definition, we'll say that unity is synonymous with harmony or agreement, which has to do with arranging parts into some kind of a uniform design. I want to show you as we look at this, What unity should look like and what it does not look like. But the first illustration I want to give you is that of 20 or so people standing in front of an image or a portrait. Maybe some kind of a painting. And if you were to ask people what are some of the standout features of that image, you probably would get 20 different opinions. But you could start a conversation about that portrait and somebody could come along and engage you and pretty soon you could you could debate about whether or not that painting was actually painted when they said it was painted. Or you could probably debate whether or not one or more hands was involved with the painting of that particular image. And then of course if you go far enough in the argument you could even debate whether or not it was even painted by the person we all assume painted it just depends on how the discussion goes. But whatever happens, it's possible for people to convince you not to believe in the authenticity of the image. That's what I'm getting at. And all of that can come from listening to an expert, or listening to someone who's not an expert, but all of these things can rearrange the way that you perceive that particular image. Well, unity has to do with people thinking the same thing about the same object or the same person. It's near impossible to have unity where you don't have unified thought. And to form a unified form of thinking, you have to change people's language. Sometimes you have to change the the way that they perceive things. And you can do that. It doesn't take long at all to do that. In 90 days, the military changed all of the folks in uh, boot camp as far as what we think about things. We learned we learn quickly that that's no longer a floor, that's a deck, that's not a wall, that's a bulkhead, that's not a ceiling, that's an overhead. Now I could talk with anybody who's been in the military and they'd understand that language. Somebody who's a civilian could come on a military base and they could say, hey there's a book on the floor and then immediately everybody knows to look down, there's a book on the floor. But you can be a military person walk in the midst of civilians and say, look there's some keys on the deck. And they have no idea what on earth you're talking about. So uniformity is important for us as Christians. And the only way God can get us to think the same things about the same things or similar image is by renewing our mind. Your ability to change your thinking according to scripture has everything to do with how you're going to perceive God and the images that the Lord has placed in scripture. And the reason so many people see different things is because we have different people giving us different terms and reinterpreting those terms. So, of course, we know that we, you know, if you want to be a PC or politically correct, you, you don't call a, oh, Tiffany had informed me today, you don't call a prostitute a prostitute. She's a sex worker. See? You don't call a porn Person, but You don't use that language. Now it's an adult film, actress, and all these kinds of things. To to essentially either legitimize something or make it more mainstream to take away any kind of stigma that may be attached to it. That's what I'm getting at. So in the beginning, when different diseases were coming out, sometimes they had names that people didn't particularly like today. So uh, in the beginning, there was an age. It was called GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency Syndrome. Then they changed that because it identified a particular lifestyle and they didn't want that to happen. So the the thinking processes are important. And that is why so many people want your children and grandchildren at such an early age. If you can begin to shape how they think, it's near impossible to get that out of them. So you produce unity that way. So it's an essential component for anybody who wants to achieve a goal. And if you got two or more parties together, we have to think about Amos chapter 3, verse 3. It says, can two people walk together when they're not in agreement? The answer is no. You need agreement amongst people in order for there to be some kind of harmony. If If we have a tug of war and you've got people on one side and people on the other side, usually the people that win are the people that pull in unison. You can have weaker people on one side, stronger people on the other, but if the stronger people are all, if they all snatch the rope at a different time and pull, and all the people over here that are weaker pull in unison, they're still going to win, because they work, they're working in harmony. That's, that's the difference. So with, with diverse groups of believers, even though we had a lot of these in ancient times, the only way it can function, the only way it can last You have to have them think the same thing. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to show you what can happen when you have differences of opinion. And Paul is trying to work on that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 11. It says, For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren... By them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Contentions are disagreements. That, that's discord. People are contending about different things. Now this I say to you that every one of you says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulos, I'm of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. So he gives us the names of people that he did baptize. The letters of Paul teach us that there were many, many people who were Christians, but in these different church groups, in these different communities, some of them had different beliefs. And that's why Paul had to admonish them or rebuke them about certain beliefs. What he dealt with with the Galatians was entirely different than what he had to deal with with the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, these folks were trying to be Christian while permitting certain kinds of sin. So you had somebody who was in bed with their father's wife. Paul said this shouldn't go on. You you had people, as we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where they were aligning themselves with certain individuals. Paul never said to them, you weren't Christian because you followed Apollos or Peter. But he did say that by doing that, it displays the contention and you can easily be misled. That happens. I, I've used this illustration before and, and people oftentimes chuckle. I say, what if what if I passed away today and within about three years, there were people that started calling themselves the now, see The Darolites. Now, see, if that if that were to happen, I know I know Bill Cody would be one of the first ones. But but if if. If we had the Darylites, people would say those people are crazy. But then you start working your way back in time, go back to the medieval age, go back to before Martin Luther passed away. If in 1529 people would have said we were Lutheran, they would have said, what? What are you talking about? Now John Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791. If in 1745 people would have started saying, we're Wesleyan, they said, what are you talking about? Well, John Calvin lived in the 16th century. If, if if people would have started saying they were Calvinists during his lifetime, they would have thought it's strange. Same thing with Arminius. Well, the, the, the thing I'm trying to get across to you is Paul at no time said to these Corinthian people who were in these different factions with these followers and their favorite leaders, he never said to them they weren't Christian. He never said they weren't saved. He just simply said, you need to ensure that you don't become locked into a mindset where you only believe that the most important thing to God is your for and no more. As if God can't move outside of the Apollos group or the Peter group or the Paul group. And this is what we have. Here's we're looking at first Corinthians one. But with all the diversity that we have in the body of Christ today, let's not forget. There are certain essentials that cannot be negotiated. It doesn't matter how many different churches claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as well as I do, there was a time where the sign on the door gave you some kind of an indication of what people believe. But that means nothing now. Hardly anything at all. Because a, a church can have a denominational name or a non-denominational name, but you'll never really know what people believe until you go in and interact with the people. Because they can have on paper, this is what we believe, and the bulk of the people may not even believe what's in the paper. See? The doctrine may say one thing, but the people believe something entirely entirely different so let me give you the the essentials we've done this before but let me give the essentials that that are non-negotiable number one we have to believe that jesus is god incarnate that he has come into this world he's god that came into this world that's a non-negotiable if if you stutter or you stumble on that point then the rest of these you're not going to be able to hold on to so the next one would be the virgin birth Without the virgin birth, we we don't have God in the flesh. The whole aspect of the angel appearing to Mary and coming to Joseph and all of that, that's absolutely essential. The second thing, the sinless life of Jesus. If he didn't live without sin, he could not be what John the Baptist said he was, and that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then the next one, of course, would be his atoning death. He died on the cross in your place and in my place, received the penalty, the guilt, the shame, the judgment that should have come to us. He received that so that we would be able to believe in him and be justified by our faith. The next one, of course, will be the resurrection. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if a person denies the resurrection, their faith is in vain. Then, of course, the ascension if If we believe he was God in the flesh and he lived here and then rose from the dead, then he had to go somewhere, so he was called away. Now we disagree with the Mormons who say that during the period of Jesus' resurrection between the resurrection and the ascension, he came here to America and preached to people here, so we don't believe that that's what the Mormon people say, but that that's not in scripture and, and that's not biblical so we we disavow any kind of belief belief like that. So Jesus ascends to heaven. And then the Bible says one day he's going to be judged. Those things are absolutely essential. People can argue about whether or not there's going to be a rapture or not a rapture, though I believe there's going to be a rapture. And they can argue about whether it's going to be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, and all that that kind of a thing. There are a lot of things. There's a lot of latitude on, but there's certain things that you just can't negotiate on. And those are the basics. And if you lose sight of the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh, everything else crumbles. It falls apart because you say, how-, how could he? <sighs> when is a virgin ever conceived? See, But if you know you're dealing with God, you're not dealing with the impossibility. God can do anything he wants in the midst of his his creation. Okay, now in Ephesians, going back to Ephesians now, in Ephesians 1 verse 1, we learn that he's writing this epistle to Christians, to faithful saints in God. And the word saints does not designate a people who have passed away and then later been designated saints. It means Christians that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us in here are saints, just like the Ephesian Christians were saints. Okay, so in Ephesians 4 again, notice he says in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. That's what we should strive to do. If we're going to strive to do anything, let's try to maintain peace and unity. How is this going to work? Well, we're going to have to understand some of these terms again. He uses the word body in verse 4, but look at verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by which every joint supplieth. Now, your physical body, he uses as a type of the instrument that God uses to reach the world with the gospel. So the church is signified by the body. Now when you think about this body, they say we got 206 bones. We've got all kinds of tissue and skin and and, and veins and, and all these things, arteries and stuff that's in here, all these different organs. But, but each one of these has a different function. The hand is not supposed to do the work that the foot does. Your arm is not going to do the foot, the work that your leg does. So in the body of Christ, then, you have a variety of different kinds of ministries, different kinds of teachings. And out of these teachings come The various ministries because of the functions. The the accusation that is leveled very often against the Protestant movement is that it is divided because it has so many different kinds of denominations. And that's an allegation that will come sometimes from uh, the Roman church, sometimes from the Orthodox churches, without people understanding sometimes that even in those communions, you have different denominations and groups. So the, the man who years ago made that movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ, what's that man's name? The, the, who? Gibson. Gibson, Mr. Gibson, okay. Made The Passion of the Christ. Okay, He's, he would claim to be Catholic, but he would claim to be part of a Catholic church that is distinct from what we all think of as Catholic. When I lived in the Middle East, the Chaldean Catholic Church wasn't connected to the Roman Catholic Church. The Coptic Church in Egypt is not connected to the Roman Catholic Church. If we speak of Orthodox churches, you have your Greek Orthodox, you have your Ukrainian Orthodox, you have your Russian Orthodox. Orthodox and so on and so forth and they're not all up under one particular person but we have the idea sometimes when the allegation comes against the Protestants that you have one particular uniform group in these other ones whereas the Protestants are divided and I don't misunderstand me we, we it seems to me in many ways we have far too many uh, church groups and denominations sometimes but th- that that springs up for a variety of different reasons. Sometimes it can be over something that's silly, but it's rare that people split a church over what color to paint the Sunday school room. That's rare. Usually it occurs like this. Here's a group of people that start off hungry for God. They're walking with God. They're pursuing God with whole heart. They have convictions that are genuine and true. First generation dies. So the second generation comes along and they still love God, but they don't love God as much as the first generation. So what the first generation had as convictions now becomes rules for the second generation. The second generation passes away. The third generation comes along, and they uh, they love God a little bit less than the second generation. And the third generation is now saying, "You know what? Those old timers, I'm telling you, they, they were passionate, they were sincere, but they didn't understand everything. We understand. We've got greater light, greater technology. You know, education is a whole lot better. And so, pretty soon, the third generation they don't have the convictions, they don't have the rules. They're pretty much just stripping themselves of everything they had, and by the time you get to the fourth generation you don't have much of anything left except what's on paper Now, somewhere between the second and the fourth generation you normally have a group of people that withdraw and say i can't take this anymore and i'm just not doing this with my family and with my kids and then they end up either starting something new or becoming a part of something else. And then the whole process continues over and over again. And that's why Protestantism has what it has today, because it's constantly trying to reform itself to get as close as possible to what they believe is the original image. And other people are saying, well, that's not quite the image. We're not sure Jesus really was God. And uh, we, you know, maybe Isaiah didn't write Isaiah, might have been four different people involved with the writing of it. And, you know, the images and pictures we've had of Jesus for a long time have been incorrect. And so we've got some other people now that are showing us that this is what it really looks like. So we we, we need to realize it, it never changes the image. It only changes how we understand the image, because no matter what man does to the Bible, Tomorrow morning when you wake up, the Bible's going to say the same thing it says today. And no matter how many different commentaries come out, study Bibles come out, the Hebrew and the Greek are going to say the exact same thing unless people start working at changing the Hebrew and the Greek. See, So your source text, your original, is going to remain the same. What Paul is dealing with here is showing us that even though we're a body and there's diversity, in the true church if if we still have the basics those things that I mentioned then you you you're dealing with some people that that probably going to make it to heaven see cuz they they secure in their faith with with respect to God Jesus is the head of the true church not every fellowship that has a sign that says church is a fellowship now I I've told you about the time I was coming home from California and I got into a conversation with a gentleman in the airport, and he had been a former monk and he He just could not believe that there were still creatures on this planet like me he he hadn't he, he thought I belonged in a museum he so I, I just finished up preaching a wonderful revival meeting out there and I'm standing in line. He, he knew I had a Bible and all that stuff. He struck up a conversation and he said, well, what kind of a, what, what kind of revival was it? And I told him where I was at and he said, well, uh, what, what denomination or what kind of a church do you go to? Well, you know, I'm thinking real fast. How am I going to help him understand the kind of teaching and, and belief that I have? So I said, okay. I said, you ever heard of, uh, Oral Roberts? He said, yeah. I said, I said, Oral's a great preacher, but he just goes a little further than I go. I said, you ever heard of Billy Graham? He said, oh, yes, everybody heard of Billy Graham. I said, Billy Graham, great preacher, I don't think he'd go far enough. I said, you ever heard of Jimmy Swaggart? He said, yes. I said, aside from all that other stuff, I said, that's kind of what I teach and preach. That's where my wife and I came from before we came here, Okay. So that's I knew that would get him. So he he wanted to keep the conversation going. I went and sat down and he sat down next to me. And he said, well, are you are you one of those people that, that that believe the Bible is true? I said, well, yeah, yeah, I am. He said, wait a minute. You, you, you mean to tell me you believe that, that heaven and hell, there's a place where people don't serve God. They'll go to hell. I, I said, yeah, he got loud. He said, you're trying to tell me in front of all these people in the sitting waiting area there, you're trying to tell me that you, you honestly believe that people in here right now that don't believe in Jesus Christ, if they fell over dead, they, they die and they go to a place called hell. Well, this, this, this little Marine wasn't going to be outdone. I said, that's exactly what I believe. It doesn't matter who it is around here. If they don't believe in Christ, they're lost. That's what I told him. So we're going back and forth. And I know it was like comedy and theater for the people sitting there. But he he just could not understand that there was somebody on this planet that still believed in what these words say in this book. And I have to be honest, I was looking at him because I couldn't believe that he didn't believe. Although he told me he was a former monk and he told me now he was going to a church where the The piano player was an atheist and the pastor was an agnostic. And he was telling me about the wonderful choir they had, you know, the kind of songs they sing. They don't sing anything about the cross or sin or the blood. And and I said all of that to get back to this one point. There are a lot of places that have a sign that says church, but they do not believe in Jesus. So when we're talking about Jesus being the head of the body of Christ, we're talking about that body of Christ that is composed and comprised of genuine believers that love him. Yeah. Not an apostate church. One body, one body. There's one spirit. There're not several godheads. The gods of Greece and Rome did not qualify. Paul did not Write his epistles in order to try to pacify or appease people who were of Roman background and descent or who worshiped the gods of Asia Minor. He wanted them to know there was one God the Father, God the Holy Ghost, and God the Son, the triune Godhead. That's what he was saying. And then when the scripture speaks of one hope, as it's mentioned there, in uh, verse 4 verse 4 one hope of your calling Colossians 1 tells us that Christ is the hope of glory Paul speaks of the blessed hope the blessed hope being the coming of the Lord to retrieve his bride his believers hope is what gets us out of bed every morning tomorrow morning when you wake up If the Lord Jesus Christ has not returned, that means that God still has a plan and purpose for your life here on planet Earth. As long as he has a plan and purpose for your life, you have hope. That's the key. So here's what Paul is trying to outline for us in the body of Christ. Now, what is it that he wants from his church then? Look at verse number uh, five there. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Jesus wants the church to know there's one, see, one Lord. The scripture in Luke 646 says, how can you call me Lord and not do what I say? To take Jesus as your Lord and master means that you have surrendered your heart, your life, your mind to him. You have given him full authority and control. He's come into your heart by faith and he occupies the throne of your heart. Now, About 20 years ago, there was a a great controversy in the church called the lordship controversy. It may have bypassed you. You may not even have heard of some of this. But the lordship controversy was a debate amongst many evangelicals where they were arguing that it is possible for someone to receive jesus christ as their savior but not as their lord that is to say they would become a christian but they wouldn't be obedient to god and so if they died then they would still go to heaven because even though they denied Jesus was Lord and didn't live their life like he was Lord, they still had accepted him as a savior. Now, the, the, the whole problem with that is you don't have that kind of a construction in the New Testament. When they preached and said, repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you got the whole kit and caboodle. When you were converted, when God comes in and changes the heart, he squeezes that old cold, stony heart. And when he touches it, he gives it a new disposition. He gives it a new attitude. Life changes and everything becomes different. You receive a new set of faculties. You're able to see what you couldn't see before, except the man is born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So this is why Christians don't see things the way sinners do. And when you argue with people and they say things like this, well, I don't see it that way. Well, of course they don't. They're not Christian. But when you are Christian, God gives you the ability to see things in a manner that was different than the way you observed it before. So the person who accepts Jesus as their savior naturally by the power of the Holy Ghost is going to want to submit to him. Two people get married. They say, I do. If they really love each other. Then they're going to show that love one to the other by being submitted one to the other. He's going to get off work. He's going to come home to his wife. He's not going to get off work and go home to somebody else's wife because he loves the one he's yoked to. She's going to get off work if she works. She's going to come home to her hubby and she's not going to go home to somebody else's husband or man. It's a matter of relationship. If I come to your house and you and I'm knocking on the door and you say, "Who is it?" And I say, it's, it's, it's Daryl. And then you say, okay, come in, Daryl, but stay out sudden. My last name is sudden. So you say, Daryl, you can come in, but sudden you can't. It's impossible. How are you going to divide me like that? You can't divide Jesus as Savior and Lord. If He comes in, He comes in all the way. See, that's, that's the scripture. So we have one Lord. He's the one that comes to shape. And change us. And the Lord is the object that the spirit of God uses to conform us to that image. Christ becomes the image. He's the portrait. Everything is designed according to him. He's the pattern. So the work of the Holy Spirit now is to make us more and more like Jesus. That's the whole point of this whole Christian life, to, to get us to act more like him in our conversation, in the way that we act, in our interactions with other people. And where we fail, the spirit of God convicts us and says, OK, you've done wrong there. You can do better, but you've done wrong. You need to repent. And the blood of Jesus is there to help us to continue. The next one he says is one faith. Very interesting phrase there. <clears throat> Jude says we should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. So this, this will always get a debate going when you try to describe what faith, what belief What set of doctrines a person ought to believe, but already set out for you? What I believe from from the birth all the way right on up to the ascension of the Lord, the ones that are non negotiable. And the early church, you had different kinds of people in the early church, different beliefs. Say, what were some of those? Well, you had a group called the Ebionites. The Ebionites were people who denied that Jesus was God. They could not believe in the virgin birth. They only believed that Jesus was the son of Joseph and Mary. And there were thousands of them in Israel, in the Mediterranean districts. They died out, but quite naturally they would. They didn't have the truth and wasn't proclaiming the truth. Okay. Well, you, you had um, people that denied that Jesus had a human and a divine nature so in iraq today there are a group of people called the nestorian church and they honestly believe that jesus only seemed to be human it was really all god his body was just an apparition but you know that john says he that denies that jesus has come in the flesh has denied the truth Colossians says that in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily there's a lot of different groups and when you go back and look at the history of the church and with all the different uh, pagan gospels that they had you can see why there were so many different groups because they all believed in different images different pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ and they thought similarly about those same images but to get them on the book, to get them on the canon of scripture, this is what changes people's life. Truth is what sets a person, person free. So let me go back to, to something else. The, um, the Ebionites, then there was a, a, another group of people who only believed Jesus had one nature. They did not believe Jesus was God. They believed he was the first and the primary creature of all of God's creation. So they don't think Jesus was eternal. Well, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and that's what the Mormons believe. So Charles Taz Russell, who gave one bad prophecy after another about the coming of the Lord when the end of the world would come into being, he and others were very, very influential in guiding the Jehovah's Witnesses into believing that Jesus was the firstborn of all creation. So when you look at John 1 and 1, As we have it in the scripture, in the beginning was the word and word was with God. That new world translation is not going to make Jesus out to be God. It's not going to make him out to be the primary God or anything like that. They believe that Godhood came to him after he was anointed in that water. Something special happened to him. God gave him special favor. So we can't accept that. They deny the true atoning power of the Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. So we cannot accept the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses. That means that when we talk about the body of Christ, it would be impossible with them holding the beliefs that they hold to insert them into the true body of Christ and say it's the same. Because the doctrines aren't the same. Well, what happened with the Mormons? They had that deal here a few days ago where they moved that embassy, and then they had the uh, Southern Baptist preacher go and pray, and then, of course, a a gentleman who had run for president, and I think, or run for something he ran for, but he was Mormon, and so he, he, he called that Southern Baptist gentleman, he said he was a bigot, and he said they shouldn't have him over there praying in Jerusalem, okay, because... Mr. Jeffers or Jeffries, he, he made the statement that the Mormon church has never been considered a part of orthodox Christianity. And so Mr. Romney didn't like that. He was displeased with that. The uh, the, the issue then is, was he mad because Mr. Jeffers said that or was he mad because it was true? See? Because it's certain that the Southern Baptist preacher said that, but it's also certain that that is historically true. Mormonism has never been considered a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody in here had been in church most of their life, and you know that that has always been the case. Now, why is that? It is because Joseph Smith had the belief that when he found those golden plates, which were written in some kind of a hieroglyphic language, he thought the angel Moroni had given him the ability to interpret those golden plates, and those plates spell out clearly that when Jesus was raised from the dead during that forty-day period, he was here. He came here to America, and he preached to people that were here before the Native American Indians, and Jesus by preaching that gospel, had that message here on this planet. So during the period of the Native American Indians, paganism and everything thrived and flourished, and it supplanted the truth, and so Mr. Smith believed he was here to put that message back here in the Americas and across this continent. Well, he died in a gunfight, and his followers, because of so much persecution... Ended up making their way in that trail of tears, pushing westward, going out to Utah. And that's why they have so much influence out there now. And that is why polygamy in certain sects of Mormonism persists to this day. Because where it persists, they believe that the greater mainstream Mormon church has strayed from the truth. What are some of their doctrines? What I said about not believing Jesus was eternal. Secondly, not believing or understanding the atoning, atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have the belief that Satan and Jesus were half brothers. There was a celestial fight or war way back in eternity past somewhere back there. And every, and, and the devil lost the fight. And everybody who is born into this world with black skin are part of that group of people who were on Satan's side and lost the fight. They still practice celestial marriage. So you can have one man who has a wife. However, just like in the show that was popular amongst a lot of people with the sister wives, you'll have one wife and then you'll have celestial marriages or marriages to other women. Polygamy. Normalized and treated like it's natural. Well, when the Lord said to us there's one faith, if you don't know what the true faith is, you can easily be deceived about what is false. See, that's that's important to know. Jesus said there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 2 speaks of a doctrine of baptisms because Paul speaks of different baptisms. You become a Christian it's a baptism into the body of Christ. Every person becomes a Christian, becomes a member of the body of Christ. If you fell over dead, you'd still come up in that first resurrection. Your soul and spirit go straight to heaven. But Paul also talks about, as does the book of Acts chapter 1, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. That's not to mention there's also the doctrine of the baptism In water. See? In water. So a person goes down into the water. The baptism is supposed to recognize or represent, I should say, the fact that a person has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The water cannot cleanse you of iniquity and sin. Only the blood is able to do that. That's important to know. It's a matter of the conscience. So when John tells us in chapter 3, verse 22, that Jesus was out in the river baptizing, Then the next verse says, John was in the same area baptizing people also. They understood that you had to go into the water and come out of the water. Now, the when I lived in Jerusalem and was studying Hebrew, it was interesting to have a Bible study one time, and they were talking about how some of the folks baptized themselves at that time. They said it did not always require someone to get down in the water with you and put you down. They said sometimes that uh, if a person was converting to Judaism, sometimes that rabbi or priest would stand up there along the side of the bank, and then the baptizee would go down in the water on their own. Then the person would make a few statements up there, and then the person would go down in the water on their own. They then come up on their own and walk out. But in Romans six, the whole point of baptism is to show that you're laying down the old man and you're coming up new, coming up a, a new a new person. But that should have already happened before you went into the water. The baptism is only a testimony outwardly of what God has already done inwardly. I don't want to. Um, I, I I don't want to. Um, be, be too harsh on this, but see, there are a lot of people who honestly believe if, if, if you got an infant and you don't get some water on that infant and that infant passes away without having that water put on it, that infant's going to be separated from God. That's not true. That's not true. An infant is born into this world like you and I were born. Stained with original sin. That's inbred. That's native to our disposition. We come into this world with with, with inbred sin. However, that infant is not guilty of actual sin. Because that infant doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. You you, you can't take a toddler and explain to a toddler, okay, this is that, this is that. They don't have the capacity yet to pick up on some of these things. But it is true that as a person grows up, that some, some people do have a greater awareness and a greater sense of what's right and what's wrong, and they get it a little bit sooner than other people. But in particular with infants, I just want you to understand that. You, you don't have to lay, lay in bed at night and shake and cry because you think a little child is lost. When, when David, had committed adultery, and then that baby was born. David was fasting. Excuse me. They, yeah, David was fasting because that that child w- was being judged. And so, as he was fasting, he was saying, "Well, I'm 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 believing that God's going to touch this little kid." Okay. So when the kid died, then David turns around and he gets up, goes about his duties, and everybody said, well, "Okay, when the child was alive and was and was sick and having problems, you were fasting and turning." Down your plate and wouldn't eat and all that kind of stuff. And now you're going about your day to day affairs. And here's what David said. David said, when I was doing all that, I had no idea uh, whether God was going to listen or not. I didn't know. However, I do know this. The child is gone, but one day I'm going to where the child is. See? Now David knew that. See? David knew that. You need to know that. You need to help your friends know that. People need to understand that. That'll give people a greater sense of comfort in, in a world where uh, there's just so much pressure on people to, to do some of these, uh, th- these things. Okay, there is a whole lot more to say about uh, one God Father of all who's above all and through all and in you all, but I think I'll save that for another Bible study, because when we start talking about the oneness of God, we got to get into this whole deal with, with the Jews and then with, with the Muslims. See? Because everybody's claiming that there's only one God, but then here we turn around and say, okay, that one God has a son. see, And there's a Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what the scripture teaches, but we'll look at that with greater detail at another time. Let's have a word of prayer, and if we have any questions, we'll talk a little bit more here. Uh, Father, great, we're grateful tonight to be able to look into scripture. Paul has given us clarity about many things. Father, the one thing we do not want is to be deceived. We we don't want to be on the wrong foundation, and we don't want to do anything to remove any of the pebbles and stones and rocks out of the true foundation. Help us to be like the person that built their home upon the rock. And when the storm came, and then passed away, the house was still there. So we love you, we honor you, we praise you. In Jesus name, everyone said, amen. amen.